Welcome to Originality, the show where we explore the roots of creative genius and talk to those geniuses about what they do and why they are and how they explore all things creative. We're your hosts, Aline Sims, my pronouns are she, her, and Kay Tempest-Bradford, whose pronouns are also she, her. And today, we don't have a guest. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. What are we going to do? We don't have a guest? Oh, no. What will we do? Well, Tempest, I think you have some exciting news to share. Oh, I suppose I do. So at the time of recording it, this, it's one day until the release of my first book. Oh, my gosh. One day. Oh, book. Yay. So um, I think that we should talk about, like, the book things. But first, I want to know, the day before your book release, how are you feeling? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I bet. Uh, it's a lot of stuff. It's a lot. There's a lot of overwhelm, but it's also like a lot of good things. So hooray. So let's back up. So we've talked about it on the show, I think, in bits and pieces. And then we kind of had our hiatus and didn't talk about anything. Um, so but <laughs> let's let's back back way up and talk about one well, actually, before we even do that, we should probably talk about what is the book about, Tempest, and who is it for? <laughs> uh, so the book is called Ruby Finley versus the Interstellar Invasion. And it's a middle grade book. So it's for kids who are about 8 to 12 or 13 years old. And the elevator pitch is that uh, it's about an 11-year-old Black girl named Ruby who really loves bugs and she wants to be an entomologist someday. And one day she finds a really weird bug in her yard. So, of course, she, like, captures it so that she can study it further because, as we said, entomologist. Um, but the book, but the bug is very weird and she can't identify it. She's like, what the heck is this thing? And while she's in the middle of trying to identify it, uh, a little bit of help from Twitter, um, the bug escapes uh, from her mason jar and burns a hole through her window and jumps outside. And she's just like, what the heck? And then as she's like trying to find the bug that has escaped, which she cannot do, um, a bunch of cars roll into the neighborhood and several white men in black suits get out and they say they're from the government and that they are looking for this bug. And so, yeah, that sets off a, a chain of events that leads to adventure. Um, Cause like weird stuff starts happening in the neighborhood and nobody's heard from the old lady down the block for a while. And just like, what the heck is going on? So that's basically what the book is about. So you were working on, and you talked about a book that was set, like in ancient Egypt or based upon ancient Egypt. And you've done a lot of research into said ancient Egypt. Um, so how is it that you went from writing a book for adults to writing like a modern story for kids? It is all because um, writing books is hard. Yes. <laughs> That's basically like That's what it is. Writing books is really hard. Um, and yeah, I am still, I took a break from writing the book that's set in ancient Egypt 
um, not because of this book. This book actually happened because I was on the break. But um, one of the things that I discovered when I was trying to finish the Egypt book is that I wasn't very good at structure. And for some books, you don't need to have a very complicated structure or the structure sort of like emerges out of the story that you're trying to tell or the characters that you're trying to tell it with. But the Egypt book just started becoming more and more complicated as time went on. And at one point I was just like, ah, I can't deal with this. And I'd flip the table and there were lots of index cards involved. Um, but yeah, like I was realizing that I had not really set up my structure very well. And so I did some work in restructuring the book, just working on outline and stuff, but I did not uh, immediately start working on it because I was a little bit demoralized by how my book had fallen apart because it doesn't have any good structure. And so around that time, I was in Florida staying with my friend Alethea Contes, who um, I've talked about before and who's been uh, on this podcast before. And so during that trip, I was just, I was having all of my feelings about, you know, my structure falling apart and whatnot and like trying to figure out what to do and how to deal with it. And so one of the things that we did together, Alethea and I, is um, we played the picture game. And I've talked about the picture game on this podcast before, where it's like, you find a really cool picture, and then you set a timer and you write something inspired by it. So one of the things that we were doing just to like sort of get me back into like feeling like I could write is we were playing the picture game. And I was like, oh, I have the perfect picture that I found. And so um, we'll link it in the show notes, uh, but it's this picture um, of a little black girl who is wearing light up, those light up sneakers. And she has a water gun and she's like fighting a giant red something with it. <laughs> and so I was like, yeah, I could write something along these lines. And what I ended up writing, I think we took like 20 minutes because I was so into what I was doing. And what I ended up writing was essentially what became the first chapter of this book. And I was like, oh, this is probably going to be like maybe a short story because I sort of like had this idea of like, okay, where does this start? Like, does this thing show up as big as it does in the picture or does it show up in a different way? And I was like, oh, well, you know, maybe it's smaller when it first shows up and there a few other nebulous thoughts. And so where I, what I wrote in those 20 minutes doesn't really get to what's actually going on in the picture. It's sort of like the thing, some of the things that were leading up to what's going on in the picture. So after we were done, Alethea and I each read each other our things that we wrote. And she wrote this really fun thing about like, you know, like the, this giant red thing, like coming and attacking a school full of children. And I wrote like essentially what became the first chapter in the book, which was about um, Ruby finding the bug and not being able to identifying it and it escaping. And then the men in black suits showing up and, and her grandmother being like, get back in the house. So I, I read this thing and Alethea looked at me and she was like, you do realize that that is the first chapter of a middle grade novel, right? And I'm like, no, it isn't. I don't know what you're talking about. I have these other things to write and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I still thought that maybe it was probably a short story, but then um, as I kept noodling about it and kept thinking like, okay, well, what could come next? Or like, how do we get from A to B to C uh, through this story? I realized that it could be a middle grade novel, but that presented a problem for me because I'd never written a middle grade novel. And I was like, I, I wouldn't know what to do. And I was just like, yeah, I, I just kept denying 
that it was a thing that I was going to do. But then I was at a convention. I probably was at the Wiscon uh, Feminist Science Fiction Convention and sitting around talking to people. And I just started like narrating the entire story that I had sort of vaguely come up with in my head thus far. And everybody who was in the room at the time was very excited about it. And they all thought it sounded really fun. And so I was like, huh, well, maybe I will like try to write this. Some of the people in the room were my friends, Stephen and Valia, and another good friend of mine who's also been on this podcast, Nisi Shaw. And so Nisi at one point said, well, sometimes when I am struggling to get, you know, something finished, my friends will offer me money per chapter to finish the thing. And I was like, oh. And I was like, well, I would, sure, I'd write it. Somebody paid me $100 a chapter. I would write this book tomorrow. So then my friends Steven and Valley were like, we can't afford to pay you $100 a chapter, <laughs> but we can give you some other kind of money per chapter. And I was like, what? Are you serious? And they're like, yes. And so I was like, okay. And then Nisi was like, yeah, I'll give you money per chapter too. And so I had three people who were going to give me money to write this book. And so I was like, okay cool. Let's get it done. So, um, so I still didn't know how to write a middle grade book. <laughs> uh, so I had to do a sort of like crash course. I read several different middle grade novels, um, just to see like sort of what's, what's going on out there in, in the world of like, you know, genre middle grade novels. And, um, one of the ones that I really was like my sort of guiding star, my mentor text was, um, Sal and Gabby Break the Universe by Carlos Hernandez. And that book was so much fun. And and it was like offering me a lot of um, different ways of sort of constructing like what goes on with families, what goes on between teachers and students at school and stuff that um, really, really inspired me because the stories that I kind of remember from reading you know, books for young people when I was younger, like didn't, didn't always have like elements that I could necessarily identify with or enjoyed reading. And so it was really refreshing to see a book that didn't have certain annoying elements or things that I'm just like, oh, I can't stand this in books for kids. It didn't have any of those elements, but it was still bought. It was still, um, people love the book and whatnot. So that inspired me to be like, okay, I'm just going to like do the things that I want to do. And so that is how I ended up writing the book. But I actually learned a lesson from the whole thing with the structure and things falling apart with the ancient Egyptian novel, which was that I am definitely a person who needs a very detailed outline in order to complete a project. I didn't necessarily like think like, oh, I don't do plotting or outlining at all, or I do only do plotting and outlining. I'm a gardener. I'm an architect. I'm a plotter. I'm a pantser. You know, I, I didn't really have any strong identities either way. And like, even with the ancient Egyptian book, like I had worked out an outline, but it was more of an overview outline. But when I sat down to say, redo the structure, I had an index card for every scene in the book um, that I knew I either wanted to write or wanted to change. And I spent a lot of time creating a very detailed scene outline for each of those scenes so that I could basically 
feel the emotions as I went through the book, because that was one of the things that was missing is I was just like, oh, my character is going to do this and do that and do this. But I wasn't really thinking about like, what emotional state are they going to be in at the end of like this particular thing that they're going into this next scene and da, da, da. I had to work all of that out uh, in order for the outline to feel like it was going to work for me. Um, so when I decided to go ahead and sit down and do the Ruby book, I made that very detailed outline, um, scene by scene, not only what was happening, but the emotional context of what was happening, et cetera. And unlike people who don't like to outline because it either makes them feel like they're locked in once they've written the outline or it takes some of the joy out of, I guess, writing once they have an outline, I didn't ever have any of those issues. Um, there were several times when I was like, oh, this is not going to work out the way that I thought it was going to work out in the mm -hmm. outline. And so I changed it. Um, I did a lot of like shrinking time because I'm I'm one of those writers who's like, yeah, this is going to happen. And then four days later and then a month later. And then I was like, no, this is going to happen at two minutes later. <laughs> that over there is going to happen in this. Um, because, yeah, just like trying to keep, um, I guess, a, a really snappy flow to it for kids. And also just, you know, once I got to certain parts of the book, it made me realize that the thing I had planned was not going to quite work out. So I had to, you know, do something different. And I never felt locked in. I always felt the freedom to like change my own mind about what I was writing. But I finished the book probably in something like seven weeks uh, from when I got done with the outline and sat down and started to write. And that is the fastest that I have ever finished anything. <laughs> and you were posting chapters to your patrons on Patreon as you wrote them, right? Yeah, yeah. I gave them a chapter a week. I wrote more than a chapter a week. I actually got into a really good groove at one point where I was like writing a chapter a day. But oh, wow. also I was like, nope, if I give it to them every day, like I'm going to, there's going to be one day when I don't quite do this right. So I settled on um, giving my patrons one chapter a week. And I had been giving my patrons like chapters of the Egypt book until that fell off. And so I was just like, okay, everybody gets the chapters of this book um, so that I can, you know, I I don't want to like just leave my patrons hanging, but also it was really nice, like getting, you know, encouraging feedback every time. And like, the, I, it's not even really feedback. It's just people would just be like, oh, this is so much fun. I can't wait for next week. And that really made me happy. And it really like encouraged me to keep going. And then of course, like I would send all my chapters to, my friends and and they would send me 50 bucks um <laughs> which was which was great but um but in the end like i once i got on a roll i was like so excited to finish the book to get to the part that like had initially inspired the writing of the book and to feel like i had nailed it because that's sometimes the hardest thing yeah. about being a writer is that you don't know if you've nailed it yet until like other people read it or give you feedback. But like this book, just every time I really felt like I, I had nailed it, I was right because other people would say the same thing. They were like, oh, like this part is so good or that part was so moving or whatever. And it was one of the best writing experiences I've ever had because sometimes writing is like pulling teeth. <laughs> And you're just there like, oh, no blank page and I have one word and ah. But, um, but writing this book was like almost pure joy the whole way through. Um, and even in the revision process when I had to like 
create a subplot, which I was like, ah, subplots, stupid. I don't want those. I only want one plot. Um, But even that, like, actually enriched the book a lot. So, yeah, it was a really, really great experience. But it was definitely not something that I had ever thought I would be doing. I didn't think that I would be writing Kid Lit, but here I am. I didn't think that the first thing I got published was going to be a middle grade book, but here I am. And I'm I'm just really happy with the way it turned out. How did you go from writing a book kind of as a way to learn about structure and how how structuring a book works for you to finding an agent, editor, publisher being published? Like what was what was <laughs> the continuation of that? Because a lot of people write books and never, never, ever, ever get published. You know, there are, I don't know, 17 billion novels and desk drawers, you know, <laughs> throughout the universe. Um, so how how did you get to be a published author? Like, what what did that look like for you? Well, for me, it was an incredibly smooth process. And I don't want to like say that and make people think like, oh, it will always be a smooth process. No, not always. And like um, some of why the process was really smooth for me was was luck. Um, and some of it was just due to like other factors, some of which I had something to do with and some of which I didn't. But I have been, I've been like writing with the thought toward like creating a novel and getting an agent and all this stuff for a quite a long time. And so once I did, um, finish the book, I was like, yes, I can finally start like sending stuff out to get me an agent, blah, blah, blah. And I, and I figured that it could take a long time because like for some people it does, for some people it's a very long process. You send out a lot of queries, you send out a lot of like partial manuscripts and whatever. And then there may be lots of rejections in between the time that you start sending stuff out to when you find an agent that you like. I had participated in a couple of the Twitter pitch contests. And then so I had a few agents on my list um, from those who like liked my pitch. I also had some agents that I knew personally that I was like, you know, you could be, you might be a really good agent for me um, because they, um, they were agents for other authors who had like similar projects and, and whatnot. Um, so I put together my list of agents to query and I sent it out. And then um, at the last minute, I actually added the Jill Grinberg agency, which is the agency that I'm with right now. And at first I wasn't going to query Jill Grinberg because first of all, she felt way too fancy for me. <laughs> Jill, Jill reps a lot of very amazing, fancy people, but the other thing is she reps a lot of my friends. And when I started, you know, just like asking around people, like telling them, you know, what I wrote and who um, they thought I might want to reach out to or at least, you know, research and whatnot. Um, my friends who were with Jill were like, you should also query Jill. I got that message from like four different people. They're like, oh, query Jill. And so I was like, okay, you know, I'll, I'll put this on the list. I, I doubt I will hear from her, but, you know, it's, it's querying is free. So I did it. And Jill was actually the first person I heard back from. <laughs> like it was less than a week. Um, wow. And, you know, that might have been in part because, you know, in my query letter, I even said like my friends, da, 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 all told me that, you know, I should query you. And also I had done, you know, my research and I was saying like, 
I like with this book, this is a middle grade book, but like I see my career as being in a lot of different genres. I write nonfiction. I write adult fiction. I'm interested in writing other kinds of fiction. So um, it, I really appreciated that uh, the Joe Grimberg agency repped a lot of different people in a lot of different genres. So they have like a wide like experience with doing lots of different books and with working with authors who are in sort of a multi-genre career track. And so I had said that in my query letter, and I don't know if it was just because like I had mentioned my friends or if it was the other thing or if Jill just really liked my pitch, but she got back to me super fast and, um, and asked for a full. And eventually she was saying, I think that your work would fit best with uh, this agent in our agency. So my agent is actually uh, Larissa Melopiankowski, and she works at Jill Grimberg. And it was like, Jill was right, because once I actually talked to Larissa, like we clicked immediately. Um, She really got what I was doing with the book, Um, really was like very cool with me being sort of like a weird author who doesn't like just stick to one you know, genre or age or whatever. Um, and also, which was really important for me, was cl- was totally okay with me being the type of author who writes very slowly <laughs> because I'm not a fast writer. And so all of that, like, we just really clicked right away. And I did, you know, drop a line to the other agents who were considering me uh, just to see, like, just to let them know that I had already had somebody that expressed interest and in, et cetera. And eventually all the others sort of got back to me and they were like, you know, this isn't really like a fit for us. And if you already have somebody who's interested, like you're cool. So that whole thing, like it was very fast. Um, And again, I don't say that to be like, I'm so special because I got an agent immediately. No, like, <laughs> like some of that, like I said, was luck. Some of it is, uh, it might again, have something to do with the fact that like, Jill may have even known who I was through the fact that I know so many other authors. Um, and I, you know, have made a brand for myself, I guess you could say, on the internet with all of my yelling uh, about things. Um, and also, you know, but none of that would have mattered if she hadn't thought the book was good, right? right? And so I, I wrote a book that she very much connected with and connected me with and uh, an agent in her group that really like just right away got it. And so all of that is basically what you want. And for some people that process takes longer. It really does. Um, and for some people that process will happen like in a shorter time frame. but either way, like one of the biggest things that I always want to like impress upon people is that, you know, whether the it takes a really long time or a really short time that has nothing to do with like the quality of your book. It's more about you being able to like find that person or people who like grok you and grok what you're trying to do with your book and feel like they can then be the best people to advocate for that book. One of the uh, more hilarious things that happened was there was one agent uh, that I queried. And when I queried, I got back, uh, I think it was just an auto response or something like that, where they said, I am going on paternity leave. And so I won't be able to get to your query until like, it was like two or three months down the line or something like that. And I was like, okay, cool. Cause I thought the process was going to take a while anyway. So I was like, okay, whatever. But then when 
I had to go through the process of like informing the other agents that I had an offer, et cetera. I was like, well, this person is not going to be back at their agency for like another few months. So I just sent them a, a, an email withdrawing, letting them know why I was withdrawing. I don't think that the agent read that email, that second email from me, because I got an email from them after I'd already sold the book telling me that they didn't think that they would be the good, the best agent for me for my book. And I was like, what, <laughs> what? Dude, book sold. Like, I, but it hadn't been public yet that it was sold. And I, I just really thought it was because like that person did not see my second email before they read and responded to my first email. And so, it's, you know, it's no shade on them. Again, like I, all the other agents too were like, this isn't for me, go for it. Um, but it, but it also just really shows that like when you get a rejection, it doesn't necessarily have to do with the quality of your work. Um, it really does have to do with whether or not that person thinks that they can be the best advocate for the work. So I just got very lucky in that I very quickly found the person who is the best advocate for my work. So after I signed with the agency, um, and I made some tweaks to the book. Then um, my agent just started sending it out to uh, different editors. And we ended up in a great situation where there were multiple editors who were interested in the book. I had conversations with them over the phone. Um, they came back with some offers and we got really great offer from the publishing company that ended up taking my book, which uh, is FSG for Young Readers. Uh, and they're under the Macmillan umbrella. So I'm also part of the Mac kids section of the Macmillan website. And once again, it was, um, you know, finding an editor who really understood what I was trying to do with the book. Like all the editors I talked to love the book. Um, but I connected, uh, very much with the sort of vision for the book that my editor has. Um, and, and some of the things that they wanted to do to tweak it just to make it even better. And I have actually, like some of the best stories that I've ever published have been ones where I've had a really great editor who was able to help me tweak it to just get it that much better. Yep. Right. And so, um, so we accepted that offer. Uh, it was a really long time between when we accepted the offer to when the offer was announced publicly to when I got my contract, like that whole process takes forever. It's like, you know, if you want to get rich quick, don't write a book. Um, <laughs> it, it sucks. It's a good thing I had a job and everything. Um, Cause it's like, yeah, it took a long time, but um, my whole like process with uh, working with my agent, working with my editor and publisher has been phenomenal for me. Um, I was able to have, you know, input on things. There was lots of great communication between me and my editor. Um, she, again, like really worked with me to make the book just like shine. You know, there was, there was just like, it wasn't like a ton of stuff, but like all the things that we worked on to like really refine just made the book really, really, really good. And, you know, again, it's like, there's, there's been just so much enthusiasm from everybody uh, on this journey. Um, and, I I just feel really lucky because once again, like I found people for whom like this book spoke to them the way that like I was hoping it would speak to people. 
Um, and they just all came together to make it work for me. So it's been a long process. I sold this book, I want to say March or April, maybe of 2020, like time has no meaning. So I can't remember exactly when it was. Um, but it was in 2020. And it was it was one of those things where I was like, pandemic. Oh, no. But also, I finally sold a book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's been like that ever since where I've just like, on the one hand, like so many wonderful things happened to me in 2020. One of them being that like this book sold and we got this process started. But of course, like there was a global pandemic that impacted a lot of things and there was like lots of sadness and all this stuff. So, um, so yeah, I'm still sort of in that place where I'm like, yay, my book, but also why are we still in a pandemic? No. <laughs> yeah. So, but, and now we're, we're, we're at the, the crucial moment where the book actually is in bookstores and people can go to those bookstores and buy it off of a shelf. Which you need to do if you're listening. Um, and especially if you have an eight to 13 year old reader ish reader. Anyway. So (laughs) yeah, publishing is slow. Like traditional publishing is still, I'm not saying it's identical to the way it was like, 20 30 50 years ago but there are a lot of things that are still the same and (laughs) the the like 18 month to two year lead time from like your book being bought to actually publishing is normal and it just it just feels you know i i see people who are like i sold my book it's you know it's coming out in 2024 and i'm like but i want to read it now it's excruciating <laughs> right? yeah my father kept being like is the book out yet and i'm like i have told you <laughs> this book is not coming out till 2022 it is 2020 it's been a month he's like okay but is it out next month I'm like oh my god <laughs> it's not how time works i wish it was but it is not how time works at all so what is we talk a lot on the show about finding processes that work for you, not <laughs> disregard all advice and just just do the thing that works for you, right? What have you learned through all of this that, like, what is your advice to people who want to publish a book, especially, I guess now you're the expert in middle grade, <laughs> but like, what you know so like part of it you've already talked about like you know you you've got to be patient you're going to have to query a lot um because your your route to being published was incredibly smooth but like what are, are do you have any other pieces of advice to offer people i mean mostly just that it's it's really hard if you try to compare yourself against other people and what they did and like <laughs> we have talked about this too. I remember every time I'm like, look, Samuel Delaney published his first book at 17. I didn't publish a book at 17. Therefore, I'm not the best. And, and they'll even be like, stop comparing yourself to Samuel R. Delaney. And it's true. Like, don't compare yourself to Samuel R. Delaney or, or anyone else. Um, mostly because, yeah, everybody's path uh, to this is is different in some ways. And also sometimes you sometimes you write something that's really amazing and yet sometimes a publisher doesn't know how to do anything good with it. They don't know how to market it or whatever. And it's super frustrating when that happens, right? Just seriously, you know, hearing somebody be like, well, it just doesn't seem marketable. It's like, it doesn't seem marketable 
to white men who are 18 to 35, but that doesn't necessarily yeah. mean it's not marketable. Maybe widen your stance a little bit. And that was something that I actually like really worried about when I first started thinking about the querying process um, because I I did the thing. Um, one of the things that they asked you to do is they asked you to come up with comps, which is like uh, comparable titles when you are pitching a book. And sometimes that takes the form of like, you know, A plus B equals awesome, you know, or it's, or, or they'll say it's like people who enjoy this series of books will enjoy this because of the adventure element or whatever it is. Right. And so when I went looking for comps, one of the most difficult parts of that, um, that I, I had known before, but hadn't really settled into my head is that there are not a lot of middle grade books with children of color as the protagonists. And a lot of the ones that exist are ones where the, the central conflict or issue of the book is something to do with their race. And even though I think issue books are actually fine when children of color, like mostly only have issue books instead of books where it's just like, Black kids getting into adventures, black kids having like, I don't know, weird sci-fi things happening to them, getting, was it isekai, I think is the word, off into a fantasy world, right? Um, There's not a lot of that. And so it was hard to find comps for that reason. And I remember thinking this is either going to be why the book sells or why the book doesn't sell. Yeah. Um, Because it's like, are they, are they not even looking for this? Or it's just that like, not a lot of people have written it. Um, And What's really great is that in the time between me doing that search in like the summer of 2019, and now there are actually like more books that are Black kids or other kids of color just like having adventures and doing cool stuff. And it's not just about issues and sad things and whatever. And that all makes me really happy. Like just this year alone, because like I I belong to a debut group of people who... um you know, all of us, our books were supposed to be coming out in 2022. Some some of them had gotten pushed off to 2023 because of the whole like supply chain business. But so, you know, in our group, even like just a lot of different books um, written by BIPOC authors with BIPOC characters in them, just doing stuff like having, you know, magical adventures and things like that. And that makes me so happy. And it also, again, it's like, in in that whole process, I accidentally tapped in to that, um, which just goes to show like you you should always write the things that you want to write, like what's what's in your heart, what's the book of your heart. Um, because if the trend doesn't exist for it, that doesn't mean that you can't, you know, be part of a growing trend. And you like just because something else that's like yours isn't necessarily on the market doesn't mean that there's no place for it in the market. Um, but that can be hard because it, it, you know, it it waxes and wanes whether or not somebody who has a book that doesn't fit into the market, um, somebody will take a chance on them. Uh, and it's like, so much of it is arbitrary and based on like things that have nothing to do with you, things that have nothing to do with like your writing or whatever that like, there's no, there's no one path to doing any of this. Uh, which can be really frustrating because like it would be nice if we could just sit down and be like, okay, you do A, B, C, and D, yeah. and then you have a published book. But unfortunately, 
we do not we do not have such things um and the only i think it used to be a lot harder uh especially for writers of color to be able to get their stuff out there but another one of the things that i've been learning a lot lately is that there really is something to be said for saying okay if i can't find a traditional publisher to do this then i can strike out on my own or i can go with like a smaller publisher um, I can be a hybrid author, et cetera. Um, and I think that the most frustrating thing about having um, your book published is that you realize that your your artistic talent is a, a silo. And what you have to do to get published is a different silo. They are not the same things. <laughs> They're really not the same things. And that is that can be really annoying. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about that next because I know a lot of like the last, I don't know, year, but especially the last six months or so, you know, like it's out of your hands. You're There's nothing else you can do with the book, but you're still working on the book, right? This is something that mm-hmm. we talk about. Like you and I have calls every week-ish, um, whether we're recording or not. And like, most of the time when I talk to you, you're like doing something, something to do with the book. You're um, working on a list of like radio stations so that you can like get your <laughs> get get people talking about it on the radio. And like, so can you talk about that process? And I know that for you, you have focused a lot on making sure that that kids of color, that black kids can get get the book so that, you know, they can see themselves and that it's your market too. So you you have focused on that piece in addition to broad, you know, general marketing that authors have to do. So like you have an extra challenge on top of like the regular challenge. So what has what has this process been like for you, or what has the process been for you? Well, a lot of it, and you know, the things that were like separate to the actual writing and editing and copy editing stuff to the book was, yeah, like just gathering together all the things that would allow me to basically publicize or market the book, um, things that I could do that um, reached out to the communities that I wrote the book for. So, um, I did like attempt to make a list. It's really hard to find a list of all the black radio stations in America. You'd like, you wouldn't think it would be, but like, it's annoying. Um, but yeah, finding the black radio stations, having the list of all the, um, black bookstores in the country that I could find. And yeah, just like attempting to make sure that I was doing some kind of outreach to communities that, you know, might not necessarily see some of the more mainstream marketing stuff that my publisher was doing. Um, But, you know, just to make sure that like folks who are in my community know that I have written this book and this book is like for my community. And that part, I knew that I would have to do some of that, but I didn't know the scope of how much of that I would have to do until I joined um, a cohort of folks. And it was this cohort that was put together by the Brown Bookshelf and Highlights Foundation that was um, this group of Black children's book authors who all came together to like learn about marketing and publicity and opportunities for like 
honing our craft. And, you know, we just have this like great community that we, that, you know, came together around this. And I learned so much just from being in that initiative. Um, and I'm pretty sure that they're going to continue. They're going to keep doing this. And that was like so helpful because it, it allowed me to understand like some of the, yeah, some of the difficulties surrounding um, making sure that you're marketed to uh, what, you know, I guess would be considered like niche communities. But then they gave me a lot of information that I I just wouldn't have known. Like that's where I found out that like a lot of black people still listen to the radio. And so they were like, make sure that you reach out to radio stations too, because that that is a thing. And I was like, oh, I wouldn't have guessed that because I refuse to listen to the radio. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, it's like, I won't do it. But yeah, like apparently there are a lot of people who still do. So that process has been very eye-opening. I haven't done a whole lot of stuff because I had like all these grand plans to do all this stuff leading up to the debut. So it's like media blitz. But then I also had to think about the fact that like for middle grade books, especially like there's, there's always a lot of emphasis on like, oh, it's your debut book. And then we have to do all these things like on the day that it comes out. So that like this, that or the other happens. But like middle grade books are are ones that actually have a really long tail because um, you're going into schools, you're going into libraries. And so I also had to like sort of calm down about like, I have to have 12,000 interviews before the book comes out because I am going to need to continue to promote this book like it came out yesterday for a year. Yeah. <laughs> and and so thinking about that may help me to calm down a little bit because I was like, okay, like I can spend time, you know, like this month I'll spend time sending out all this stuff to different radio stations and see if I can get some radio appearances. And the next month I will, you know, reach out to all the black bookstores and not only, you know, make sure that they know about the book and have it in stock, but if they want to do like some sort of you know, virtual event or whatever. I'm happy to do that. I'm only doing virtual things. I also have to start visiting schools. So I have to talk to small children. <laughs> it, I have to talk to them. Um, I I'm very excited about talking you. to small children. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it's it's been very eye-opening, but it's also one of those things where I also, but I really have to really think about like everything in terms of my long-term strategy. because there is a lot of pressure put on like debuts and release weeks and stuff like that, especially for genres for older readers, right? Like YA adults, et cetera. That isn't quite, it's not the same sort of ball game here in middle grade. And so having to like adjust my expectations because for all that I actually know, a, you know, quite a bit about publishing and writing careers and writing life, et cetera. I know all this from my experience in adult science yeah. fiction and fantasy. And then they're like, so middle grade. And I'm like, what? What? Get, but where's my giant two-page ad in Oprah Magazine? And they're like, no, we're not doing that. We're sending this to a thousand libraries. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess. <laughs> but meanwhile, yeah. you send it to a thousand libraries and so many kids will read your book if you're in a thousand libraries. So libraries. I've had people ask me about like, picture books how do I become a picture book author and it's like well one I know stuff about publishing like I've always been interested in the industry but I know stuff about about it for that reason but it's like secondhand thirdhand knowledge you know but also picture books totally 
totally different ball game from like anything, anything else. And I know nothing. I did not know about the long tail for middle grade books. So that's kind of exciting because I was feeling a little bad since this episode is not coming out until like, you know, a couple of weeks from now, probably. And it's, I was like, oh, but we need those debut numbers. We need it. So it's kind of <laughs> nice to hear that there's maybe a little bit less pressure to get that first week, you know, uh, on on the books. And that it's yeah more about the the months to come. So I'm feeling a little bit better now. Thank you for alleviating that concern for me. <laughs> yeah, I had to. I actually had to have somebody like tell me this so that I could calm down. I was like, yeah. "Is this all normal?" And they're like, "Yes, this is absolutely normal for middle grade, and it's fine." Um, and also, I think somebody in our debut group um, had uh, like given us a link or something to um, an interview with Rick Riordan. And he said that apparently the Percy Jackson books didn't really take off until like five years after the first one had been published, you know? And so that, I mean, that's one of the biggest, most popular middle grade series right now, but it took five years for that to even begin to be big. Right. And it helps that like he kept writing books, you know, it's not that it was just that one book and then like nobody heard from him again, but then five years later, people were like, whoa, what about this? Right. Um, so that definitely helps. But yeah, just like thinking about how sometimes it can take a while because, you know, again, with with middle grade stuff, with, you know, kid lit that's even below this, it's it's more of a, you know, a steady, gradual build um, in order to like get something that people go like, oh, my God, this is so amazing. So that's what I had to like sort of settle in my head. Um, and it can be hard sometimes to th think about that. Cause I'm like, I have to keep doing this. I can't just do one and have my <laughs> one million dollars. And then my other million dollars from Netflix. And then my other million dollars from the lunchbox people. This is terrible. No. Um, <laughs> but that's also like literally not the story of hardly anybody. Yeah. That's, you know, and, and I hear that said all the time. It's like, Oh, those people are outliers and this, that, and the other. And it's like, yeah, you could say that to me all you want. But am I going to still be like, but where's my fanfare, right? Instead of like actually having realistic uh, expectations about it. But I I at least had a leg up on the realistic expectations part because I do have so many friends who um, who write and who go through all the things. And also, I just remember when I first got the offers, like the initial offers for the book, and it was like, oh my God, this is real this book is going to be published is so real. Like you sort of expect to have that moment where you're like the choir's singing and the clouds part and the sun is coming down on you. And you just, you feel the best you've ever felt. You're like, now I need nothing else in my life because I have reached the pinnacle. And none of that happened. Oh, I still had to do work the next day. <laughs> I still had to like get up and do things. Um, and that was okay because it wasn't as if like I wasn't happy. I just wasn't like ecstatically joyful, but I was like, hey, this is a a big, nice change in my life. I'm going to be able to do some things now that I couldn't do before because I didn't have the money for it or whatever. And also this can lead to other opportunities. Like I could also get mad about the fact that I haven't been offered a movie deal yet um the audacity again at, <laughs> right the audacity how dare they not be knocking down my door but um at the same time like 
I know that like once my book is out there, that's going to open up other opportunities for me. People are going to read it. People are going to hear about it. And they're going to be like, oh, would you like to do this project? Oh, would you like to do that project? You know, and that's already happened to me, you know, with in other venues. Like I get asked to do gaming projects sometimes because I worked on um, Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. Um, and I've even gotten some like different opportunities because of short stories I've published. So, you know, just keeping in mind that it doesn't have to be big flashy angels singing from the heavens for it to still be like really good. And in the end, most authors have to build a career. They, they don't just be like, boom, flash in the plan. Everything's great. Here's $20 million, blah, blah, blah. Like you still have to build it. So that's, that's the part where I'm at now. It's like, now I'm at the beginning of building my career. So do you have any next steps that you want to talk about? Or are you still planning and plotting and being secretive about that? <laughs> well, my next steps are I have another book that I have to write on contracts uh, with FSG. And uh, that book, even though it is not the ancient Egyptian book that I have been writing since forever, it is actually another book that is based on ancient Egyptian stuff. So like, yay, I get to do my ancient Egyptian stuff. Um, and so I'm really excited about that because um the idea for this book totally comes out of like my love for museums and ancient Egyptian, you know, principles and just all this great, cool stuff. And I am super excited just to like get started on that. But I also said that I'm not going to start it until November because I'm like, I think I get to have a break. Yeah. <laughs> Once my book goes out in the world, I get to have some kind of break. And then I'm going to start on the next thing. And then after that, um, I, yeah, it, in this whole like building a career business, I have to figure out like, what are my next steps going to be? Um, what are the next books that I want to try to sell? Do I want to still go with like some kid lit stuff or do I want to go back to adult? Um, I'm leaning more towards doing kid lit stuff. Um, maybe a sequel to uh, Ruby if FSG wants it. And also I have some chapter book ideas and a couple of picture book ideas that I am still try, trying to work out because it's not easy. Um, you can't just be like, boop, I did it. I wrote a picture book. Yeah. Like <laughs> it does not work like that. But yeah, thinking about those and, and in part because writing for kids is so much shorter. It is. Like there's another reason why <laughs> Ruby got done. <laughs> it's so much, so many fewer words. Oh my goodness. And I'm like, what are you telling me? I could just give you 2000 words. And that's a whole book. What? Give me that. I want, I want some of that pie. So, um, so being able to write things where the, the word count expectation is lower will, I think help me like finish more things. Um, and then hopefully that will mean that like, I will then have more of a cushion to be able to like take some longer time to finish the Egypt book. I, I wrote to my patrons last month about like how I have this wall in my office now that's all set up for um, me working out like all the different character arcs for all the people, which then has to be fit into like the two structures that I'm working on for that, that I've learned about. And it's, it's a lot of stuff that needs to be worked out in index and post-it note form on a wall. Um, oh, you have so a conspiracy gonna, board. It, I have a conspiracy board. Like <laughs> I just, you know, my string is blue instead of red. <laughs> um, so I I have all that to work out. And so that that actually is it's gonna take me some time 
to get back to that. So having, um, you know, a, a financial cushion to be able to take more time to do that, uh, it's actually super useful to me. And then there's also the part where I keep running away to Egypt. <laughs> so I'm like, well, I, I had money, but then I went to Egypt mm-hmm. for a month and now I don't have none no more. So I have to write more book so that I could go back to Egypt <laughs> and spend all my money and then uh, run back. And the cycle continues. <laughs> but, you know, I, I have to go back to Egypt or else how am I supposed to write books about Egypt? Sure. Hello. You need Hello. your muse. Yeah. You had a picture that inspired you. What else inspired you to write this book? Like, I know we're backtracking a bit, um, but I'm curious as to, like, what went into that? Because we talk so much, like, the original premise of originality is, like, where do ideas come from, right? Like, so tell me <laughs> tell me more about your ideas. So other than the original picture, um, I, like... There were some decisions that I made right at the beginning of me sitting down to do that writing exercise uh, that that sort of set the the tone for everything. Um, one of them was like, obviously, I wanted there to be a little black girl because there was one in the picture. And then I also wanted her to be like really smart. And then, you know, I was like, well, why would she like be looking at this bug? Like, why wouldn't she just like run away from it or stomp on it or something? And then I was like, oh, well, because she's really into bugs, she wants to be an entomologist. So that's why she like captures it instead of being like, oh God, or running away or like not being curious about it at all. So then like, that was a big thing. It's like having my main character be a black girl who was really smart. And also just thinking about like representation in general, right? And how I wanted there to be a lot of really great representation in this book. And so as I decided like that it was going to be a book and that I had to bring in other people and whatever, um, I started making decisions about uh, the neighborhood that Ruby lived in and the relationship between her parents and and like her extended family. So I wanted to have um, a big group of friends that they were all sort of in like a little, you know, group together, a cadre. And um that I wanted to show her in a multi-generational home uh, where she had both parents. So she lives with her parents and her mother's mother, so her grandma. And her mother's sister lives down the block because this is very similar to the way that I grew up. My, My mother's sisters didn't like live down the block, but sometimes they lived with us. And um, my grandmother... You know, she and my grandfather were one of the first people from uh, their little town in the South to come up North uh, to get work and stuff like that. And so once she and my grandfather were settled, then they started hosting other family members to come up with them. So I wanted to, you know, like have that sense of this is a family that is very close and they they always help and support each other and whatever. And, you know, just like, what did happen is that, you know, my grandmother lived with us um, be- and and I just, I wanted all those things in there. I also really wanted to have a very strong um, relationship, loving relationship between Ruby and her father, because again, I had that and I don't see a lot of that in representations of Black kids on uh, in movies, TV, in books, et cetera. 
And I also wanted there to be this really strong sense of community once again, because I had that, like this book is set in one of the communities that I grew up in um, when I was a kid. And, you know, it's funny because it's, it's very close to like how it was when I was a kid, but not close to how it is now, but it's definitely like what I want that neighborhood to be again, you know, that I, that I think it can be again. So like, that's, that's one of the reasons why this is science fiction, because it takes place in a future where that's going on. And all of those things like, like rose up pretty organically, but like they were all just really based on like stuff that I knew you don't get to see a lot. There's not a lot of representation for, but was all really important to me as a kid. And I wanted it to reflect other kids um, lives and also be a representation of like a working tight knit community that does look out for each other. Um, because that I think is important. And I think it reflects actually a lot of the communities that kids do grow up in now. So I, I definitely like wanted all those things to be in there. And I also like, like there are so many things where there's sort of like a reaction to like, I don't want it to be that because that I feel is like annoying representation. So <laughs> I I actually was thinking a lot of Gem and the Holograms when I was thinking about the, the friend group, Ruby's friend group is that they, they all are, you know, from the, the same neighborhood. They all live within a few blocks of each other. And they are, their friendship is characterized by mutual respect. Like even when they sort of get on each other's nerves or whatever, their friend group is not like being catty about each other and like playing mean pranks and, you know, whatever. There's been a few times where they had, you know, they went too far with the yo mama jokes, but um, like mostly their interactions are characterized by them actually caring for each other. Um and, and like I said, I was thinking a lot about Gem and the Holograms when I was thinking about like this, because, you know, we had talked about on the Gemcast how like the whole thing about that show and, and the holograms was that even when they had fights or, you know, disagreements or whatever, it was always about how much they loved each other. Yep. Right. And like, that was our big frustration with the movie where it was like, and now we'll give you this plot where the one girl is like, F you friends, I'm off to do this other thing. And she has to learn the power of friendship. And I'm like, mm, I don't like it. I don't like that stuff. Like we don't need to learn the power of friendship. We just need to have the power of friendship. Yep. Like, what are you doing? Stop it. So yeah. So like there were a lot of things that when I initially came up with them were in reaction to stuff that I felt was, you know, annoying uh, or whatever. And I didn't want to see and are things that I didn't see enough of that I felt were important. But then like the whole thing with the actual, like there's a weird bug and then it escapes and then meta block. Like I didn't know what the heck was going on. I found out <laughs> while I was writing um, that initial outline, I was like, Oh, and then this, and then that. And then um, I even had a point where I at first was thinking that, there was going to be one kind of conflict and then it turned into a completely different kind of conflict by the time I came to that part of the book. Uh, and, and again, it just like, I just kept thinking like, what is a way that I can do this? That's fun. That's not the kind of thing that I usually see. And also like goes along with my, sort of emerging theme of community and mutual support and togetherness. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's that's really what led into all the stuff that that really happens in the end, which I won't spoil for the crowd. 
but this was more based on my feelings about my childhood than I thought it was going to be. Cause like, even though Ruby is not me, because first of all, I don't like a bug. Like in the book, grandma's like, where there's a bug, let's kill it. That was me. Right. <laughs> I, I do not, I don't want to look at bugs. I don't want to deal with bugs, but, um, but I had to learn a lot about them in order to write this book. And, um, but, but the fact that Ruby has a little bit of a problem telling the truth because she wants to do what she wants to do and not what other people want her to do. That might've maybe a little bit <laughs> been based on myself. Um, but other than that, like, as I went on, I also just like started putting the names of my, my family members in the book and as, as ways to honor them, because this was, you know, a book that was about how much I had, um, a loving, childhood where I was cared for deeply. And so Ruby has a loving childhood where she is cared for deeply. And that was probably one of the most important things I wanted to get across with the way that I sort of constructed the neighborhood and and all the things that are going on. Another thing that really inspired me was Murder, She Wrote. (laughs) Because again, I didn't necessarily set out to write a mystery, but like in the course of things, I was like, yeah, this this is, you know, it's a mystery. Like, they're trying to figure out what's what's up with this bug. And so I ended up, like, having a scene where all the kids are, like, trying to get information out of somebody. And they're doing it by, like, not directly asking, but, like, saying these things to, like, trigger the person to give them the information that they want. And that's 100% a Jessica Fletcher move. <laughs> And as I was writing the scene, I was like, Jessica Fletcher would have done it this way, right? <laughs> and so, <laughs> um, I, yeah, I was 100% like, well, if we're going to do this mystery thing, I got to lean into the mystery stuff that I know. And that is Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> so I felt, I felt very fancy um, adding that. Uh, <laughs> and the other things were, uh, oh, and I, this is like a personal thing, a personal peeve, but I get really annoyed with books and media about kids where like really terrible, unfair things are happening to kids and nobody cares or, or people like are stupid and say like, that didn't happen. You know, it was instead this way. And you're like, Oh no, the poor kid. Like I just, I can't stand it. I cannot stand that. It caused a little bit of a problem because I was like, the kids don't talk to their parents, but their parents aren't also like terrible people who don't believe them. But at the same time, they can't talk to their parents too soon about this because otherwise then the book is over. Right. So I had to like come up with reasons why they weren't talking to their parents about some of the things that were going on, but also keeping like having the parents say directly, like if there is something that is bothering you or whatever, you can come to us. Like we can help you with things and having the kids like, like believe that on some level. Um, so I didn't have any like parental misunderstandings that were based on stupid crap. Like I won't have it. I won't do it. Um, and also the other difficulty was coming up with reasons for the kids to be doing things that end up like the scenario ends up badly for them without them not thinking through the consequences. Um, and I want to say I wrote this book, I think. I wrote this book after seeing the first season of Lock and Key. I might be wrong. So I wrote it in 2019, so I might be wrong. But I just remember one of my 
biggest problems with lock and key was people doing stupid things when they should have known better. And that happens so much, but it happens a lot more in stuff for kids where people do stupid things, even though they ought to know better. And so I'm like, no, like if my characters are going to do stupid things, like they have to think that they're not doing a stupid thing, right? Like I actually find it more interesting if somebody is like, they think they're prepared. They think they've thought of everything and they go in like, we have a plan, we're going to do this. And then things go wrong because of stuff that they don't know. Instead of because they were too dumb to bring a flashlight. Yeah. Like I'm not having that. So So, yeah, a lot of different things. Um, And yeah, I feel like sometimes, uh, not all, but like I've definitely written short stories before, which are 100% a reaction to things that I have seen in other books or media where I'm like, no, that's dumb. I refuse to have that. We're going to do it a better way over here. So I love it. It's like, it's like a, this book is a mini tour of Tempest with, you know, <laughs> definitely childhood, childhood neighborhood, family dynamics, that kind of stuff. But also Jim and the Holograms and Murder, She Wrote <laughs> and uh, correcting the wrongs of other fiction. Like, I just, it's it's so you. And I love that. Yay. <laughs> I also, um, when I was writing, I, I can't remember at one point what point I realized I had to put this in, but um, so there's a character in the book. Her name is witchy poo. And she's like the cranky old lady that lives on the street that nobody talks to or whatever. And I feel like, you know, in a lot of neighborhoods, there's always that person, right? There's always some sort of witchy poo. And when I was growing up, this woman, we all called her witchy poo. I have no idea what her real name was. Like everybody called her witchy poo, including my grandmother, but I'm sure that my grandmother actually knew what her name was. And Yeah, she was that woman whose house was overgrown and we all thought that she was a witch and we weren't, you know, we're like, don't walk past that house on that side of the street because, you know, she'll jump out the bushes and get you and whatever. Um, And I I remember when I was a kid, at some point she was taken away in an ambulance and then her house was torn down and then it was just like an empty lot for a really long time. And I think that like that lot may still be empty. and. I like when I was a kid, I was just like, oh, well, witchy poo is gone. That means her dogs are going to chase after me anymore. Woohoo. But then as an adult, I was like, what the heck was going on? What was any of that? Like, and why, why did people like call her witchy poo? Like, why did the adults call her witchy poo? And why didn't anybody like do anything about like this? And then when she got sick, like, why was her house just like torn down? Um, and then I was told it was because like it was just too far gone to be renovated even uh, because she didn't take care of it. And I was just like, but, but why? And I think my aunt was the one who may have said that she thought that part of the problem may have been that the woman who, again, she didn't even know her name, like my aunt didn't know her, her real name, um, but that Wichipu may have um, been suffering from depression or another mental illness, which meant that she wanted to keep to herself Um, and, but it also meant that like her house was in great disrepair. And then when she was, you know, had some sort of health concern that they finally had to call an ambulance that she had to be put in a home, but nobody knew where she had went because nobody was actually related to her. And so I, I just have been thinking about that a lot, um, in like the past 10 years or so, just, you know, wondering like whatever, whatever happened to her and why was she like that? And so I put a lot of that into the book as well. 
of what's going on with, with, with Witchy Poo there. But yeah, like pretty much the whole description of like Witchy Poo's house and the dogs and all this stuff. Yeah, that that came straight out of my childhood memories. Um, and so, yeah, I I don't know what happened to Witchy Poo, but it's just, I just put it all in there. Yeah. So I think that's it for this time. Um, thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. I'm so excited for you. We will, of course, have um, links to all of the things in the show notes. So if you want to go order the book, you want to go order the book. So you'll be able to do that so easily because it'll be in the show (laughs) notes. And I think that all that remains is to tell people where they can find us online. I am mostly on Twitter. You can find me at Aline. That's A-L-E-E-N. Tempest, where can people find you? I'm also on Twitter. I'm on Twitter as Tiny Tempest. Um, And I'm also on Facebook. If you search for the Facebook group Tempest in a Teapot. You can follow that or join that group and you can find all of my stuff at ktempestbradford.com, including links to my book, <laughs> my book, my book. Woohoo. Yay. You can also find originality on Twitter at originality FM. Um, and I think that's it for this time. So until next month, keep on keeping on. Buy a book by Tempest's book. Bye.